This week's TribCast is sponsored by Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas is committed to health equity, striving to create more fair and just opportunities for all to thrive. Learn more at mhm.org. And the Texas State University System is Texas's first university system with seven institutions spanning 700 miles. Visit us at tsus.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for March 25th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week I'm joined by two Texas Tribune reporters, Jolie McCullough. Hello. Hey, Jolie. Hey, how's hey. it going? And, and Andrew Zhang. Hey, happy to be here. Hey, Andrew. Um, so, Jolie, you and I are the only thing between Andrew starting his weekend so let's get this go ahead and kicked off and started. Andrew let's has talk spent, really slow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Uh, Andrew has spent uh, much of the week uh, following the um, confirmation hearings of Katanji Brown Jackson. She uh, was up before the Senate Judici Judiciary Committee this week in a committee hearings that featured both of the Texas senators, uh, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn. Andrew, I want to talk a little bit about the behavior of our senators and the questions that they asked. But first, let's just talk about Jackson and this process as a whole. You sat through, you know, hours of these hearings this week uh, that, that started on Monday and ended on Thursday. What did we learn about Jackson through this process? Yeah, so I think the first thing that probably stands out is, of course, any nominee that makes it to the stage is very experienced in different parts of law. But I think for me, what stuck out was um, a lot of talk about her time as a public defender. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of times her work as a public defender came up in scrutiny from Republican senators. But I think that it also stood out to a lot of people because she would be the first person at least on this court, the current court that would have this sort of federal public defender experience that is able to, you know, take a very important part of the constitution that guarantees representation onto the court. Um, so that's what I think in terms of her experience that stands out. Of course, we know that she's a very, very experienced in multiple areas of law. She's worked in the private sector and of course for the past decade has served on two different federal benches. And then something else that I would comment on is probably her poise, which a lot of people um, have praised. You know, we've seen some Republican criticism about the way that she's answered or not answered questions, which can possibly be a matter of debate depending on which side you look at it. But she was pretty consistent in, you know, how she kept herself. You know, every time she got asked a question, she would always start with, thank you, Senator. Um, and it was a bit hard for me to see her face throughout because I was watching, um, I was facing her back. Um, but even though she did seem to get a bit um, possibly annoyed at times with the lines of questioning, she definitely didn't have any outbursts or anything like that. Definitely pretty metered throughout. Yeah, kind of pale in comparison to some of the more recent uh, confirmation hearings we've seen. Um, and of course, the Republicans, uh, brought that up um, uh, as, as well during the process. I mean, you know, this seems to be kind of the exercise now, right, where you are kind of coached to 
you know, get through the hearings and, and not kind of make a big blunder and, and give, you know, senators a reason to vote against you or, or, you know, in this case, with such a thin margin between Democrats and Republicans, you know, cause any of the more moderate Democrats to, to kind of bounce back against your side. There, you know, there seem to be some areas that the Republicans really honed in on, including, you know, our senators, Ted Cruz and, and John Cornyn, um, including the issue of um, child pornography cases and sentencing in those cases. Can you walk us through a little bit about that discussion? Yeah, so um, essentially, you know, zooming out a little bit, um, Ted Cruz specifically, when we're talking about Texas senators and several Republican senators have essentially tried to, you know, create this image that Jackson is a little bit soft on crime and that the way that they've tried to do this is by highlighting her sentencing record when she was a federal district judge. Um, and so as a federal district judge, you know, she was responsible for um, delivering sentences and the particular sentences that a lot of the Republicans scrutinized had to do with child pornography. Um, and their argument essentially was, was uh, her sentences that were given out were less than the prosecutor's recommendation um, and sometimes, you know, significantly less than, than the prosecutor's recommendation. Um, Jackson's defense to this essentially was, you know, these are just a few parts of my record. It's not my entire record, you know, just a few parts of my record cannot be representative. But, you know, a lot of different news outlets and fact checkers have called Republican comments misleading, um, you know, zooming out a little bit. In general, federal district judges and sentencing judges in general um, give um, sentences that are less than the guidelines. And I think there's a statistic out there about, you know, 60% of these sentences are actually less than what either the guidelines recommend or what the prosecutors recommend. And, you know, most people, judicial experts have concluded that um, her record is not out of the ordinary. And I believe there was an article from the New York Times either today or yesterday that actually, you know, said that a lot of these Republican senators, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, have voted for um, judges appointed by Republicans that had similar records in terms of giving lighter sentences than the recommendations presented. I, okay, I think, so you know, just as criminal justice person over here, I think it's, I mean, prosecutor recommendations, like the whole point is the prosecutor is going to push for the heart, the longest thing. So it's kind of, it's interesting if they're saying like prosecutor recommendations are the norm when, as you're saying, like it's generally mainstream that that is the outlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it is just kind of interesting, this, this soft on crime narrative, which it felt like had gone away for a very long time, but seems to be returning among Republicans in, in recent years. And, you know, I mean, you know, Texas has been kind of a leader and in, including, you know, some with the help of John Cornyn in some cases of kind of pushing certain criminal justice and sentencing reforms along these lines and, and, and where that started. But I want to talk a little bit about Ted Cruz because he, you know, aside from Jackson, was I think kind of one of the main characters of these these confirmation hearings over the past few days. Um, you know, known for his uh, aggressive questioning of Jackson and also his kind of arguments with uh, Democrats in in the chair of the committee during these hearings. There were a few little dust ups that happened during this time. Can you can you walk us through a few of those uh, uh, confrontations that Cruz had? 
Yeah, so I would say probably the big one that has, you know, hit the, the social media webs the most is when Cruz, you know, essentially tried to make, present this image that Jackson supported, you know, critical race theory, uh, you know, was a big proponent of anti-racist teachings and stuff like that. And he made a pretty big show of it, you know, on the on his first day of one-to-one -one questioning. He brought in posters um, highlighting pages of books that he said, you know, were anti-racist. And then he also, you know, brought physical copies of the book, um, you know, showed them to the room, tried to submit them to the record. Um, and he did this by essentially, you know, uh, Jackson, um, is I on the board of trustees or, you know, a similar role for a private school up here in DC. And, you know, that, that school is a, is a very, you know, progressive forward looking school. It was founded as an integrated school, you know, during while segregate during while legal segregation and schooling, you know, it was still around. So it's always been sort of a progressive school. And, um, Cruz has said that, you know, this, this, this school uses the books that he was showing out things like, anti-racist baby by Ibram Kennedy and also, um, you know, introductory books on critical race theory, which, as we know, has been a common Republican attack on what has been going on, so to speak, in schools. Um, and Katanji Brown Jackson essentially was saying, you know, in her role, you know, as an, in her advisory role over the school, she had no role over the curriculum, but more so the most important part is they had no influence over her past rulings as a judge and they wouldn't have an impact. Um, in her role as a Supreme Court justice, which is, of course, why we were all in the room that day. Yeah, and this, of course, I think, uh, as you mentioned, created a lot of kind of social media stir, you know, people questioning why a Black female judge, you know, the first Black female justice, if she is indeed confirmed, would be getting asked questions about books, you know, that, uh, you know, are related to race and, and things like that. Of course, you know, uh, a lot of people kind of looking at Cruz and questioning, you know, his his motives for bringing this up. You know, uh, I believe it was a Democratic senator who basically came out and said, you know, I, I know the senator likes to get on TV, right? Um, then there was another photograph, I believe, by a Los Angeles Times uh, photographer that um, that kind of made the waves, got a lot of attention. Of Cruz kind of caught on camera checking searching for his name on Twitter soon after kind of his line of questioning there. Um, you know, some of this, I think, right, like, let's be realistic. These, these confirmation hearings have evolved quite a bit over the years and, you know, have, have fallen into a category where I'd kind of put like state of the union speeches and debates where they have sort of gone from being, you know, essential processes for democracy in which people are being vetted either for, you know, uh, their candidacy for, for elected office, or in this case for the Supreme Court, that have kind of largely turned into political sideshows that I'm not sure change anybody's minds. I mean, we came into this process, Andrew, with a pretty good sense that we might be looking at a 50-50 vote, maybe a couple of Republicans coming over onto Jackson's side. Seems like maybe we're leaving with that same feeling, am I right? Yeah, that that's that's exactly right. We're probably looking at this point at one or maybe two um, Republican senators that are likely to vote for her nomination. And, you know, on that note, something that I think is really interesting is if you look back a couple decades to some older confirmations, you know, when we had Ruth Bader Ginsburg up for her court 
um, up for her position on the court. She was vote, she was confirmed with almost unanimous um, yeses, I think maybe two or three opposed, you know, at this time. Ginsburg was already had been a very big advocate for gender equality had argued in front of the court um, and you know that sort of advocacy is you know not something that we've even seen from Jackson or even some of her predecessors um, but you know not necessarily just on the liberal side but also on the conservative side as well when of course famed conservative jurist um, Antonin Scalia was up for his position you know everyone knew he was a staunch conservative at the time and he was voted in unanimously yeah, and as you note, I, I believe Cruz is the is the only senator, am I right, who has voted against every single one of uh, Joe Biden's judicial nominees? Yes, uh, at this point, Ted Cruz is the only senator, um, of course, a Republican that has voted against all of Biden's judicial nominees. Um, in general, the Republicans have, I would say, generally been opposed to Biden's nominees. Cornyn has been a part of that camp, generally opposed, and there are just a select few um, that have been, you know, generally in agreement with Biden's judicial nominees, and those are the people that, you know, we expect to possibly vote for Kentucky Brown Jackson in the end as well. All right, so no, no suspense here from the Texans. We're expecting no votes from both of them, right? Yes, Ted Cruz has already come out and said no, and then Cornyn, um, he, um, early on, he, he, you know, seemed pretty open-minded, said he really wanted to learn more about her judicial philosophy. Um, and earlier in this week, he said he was so undecided, but leaning no. And he said yesterday or the day before that she hadn't really answered any of the questions he presented. So I would assume that, you know, these things about her judicial philosophy that he would have wanted to learn, um, you know, those questions for him haven't been answered. So I would expect to know from him as well. All right, thanks, Andrew, for your coverage of this and for walking us through it. Let's take a break to hear from our sponsors. Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges. The nine Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges are training Texans for high-demand careers in leading industries. Find out more at gulfcoastcc.org. And City Health, an initiative of the Do Beaumont Foundation and Kaiser Permanente, works to advance policy solutions that can help everyone live healthy, full lives. Find out more at cityhealth.org. Okay, so on April 27th, Melissa Lucio is scheduled to be put to death by the state of Texas. She's been on death row for more than 13 years after being convicted of killing her toddler. But as her execution approaches, questions are being raised about her innocence and a growing number of voices, including most recently a bipartisan group of Texas House members have joined the call to reconsider or delay or stop her execution. Jolie, you have been covering this case. Tell us a little bit about Lucio and, and why there are doubts here about, about whether, whether she should be put to death. Yeah, so this is a really um, interesting case. First of all, that she would be the first Latina who is uh, executed in the state of Texas if this execution does move forward as it uh, currently is on track to do. Um, Lucio is from the Rio Grande Valley, um, and she was convicted in the death of her two-year-old Mariah um, in 2007. And essentially what happened was, you know, the family called 911 saying the toddler was unresponsive. Um, what police saw when they, you know, were reviewing her body was that this child appeared to have been beaten um, 
she had bruises all over her body, scratches, um, what they appeared, what they thought were bite marks on her back. Um, so they kind of, they went with the indication that this was uh, a homicide. Um, a few days later, her death was ruled to be caused by blunt force head trauma. Um, so they zoomed in on Melissa Lucio, the mother, as the primary suspect, as she's the one who's most often alone with the toddler. And they interrogated her for about for over five hours on the night that her child died. Um, you know, no attorney present. And watching the interrogation, she she denied having beaten her child, having done anything for the first few hours, and then um, started admitting to spanking the child. Uh, she admitted to biting the child when prompted by police. Um, and she, she still very, very strongly denied anything about hitting her head or doing anything with her head. But um, that what the state called the confession um, to at least child abuse is really what led the that that's the crux of the case here was that she abused her child and in the abuse at one point struck a fatal blow that eventually led to Mariah's death. Um, that confession quote unquote confession has been a has been heavily debated over the last you know over the last decade and change um, that it was coerced. Uh, we know false confessions are often um, at the case of wrongful convictions. Um, so there has really been this push to try to get her off of death row or at least, or get her just just to have a new trial. There wasn't anyone to testify. There, the psychologist wasn't allowed to testify at trial as to why she might, uh, you know, admit to things she hadn't done. She was a victim of um, sexual abuse as a child. Uh, there was re reports of, you know, domestic violence in her in her relationships as an adult. She had um you know, they, they were obviously in, in poverty. She had 12 children um, by the time she was 37. And um, it, it's just, it's a case that there was a lot of things going on. The DA is now, has since been sentenced to prison for extortion and bribery in these case, in cases. It's just, there's a lot happening in this case and her children, everyone, um, everyone in her family are trying to stop this execution. They're trying to kind of put pressure on the district attorney in the new district attorney in Cameron County. Um, the Innocence Project has now jumped on board. They're trying to stop this in the court system. And as you mentioned yesterday, um, about 90, which is a majority of the Texas House, uh, Texas rep state representatives um, signed on to a letter to ask the board of pardons and paroles to grant Melissa Lucio clemency. Um, which could mean they would recommend that Governor Greg Abbott either delay the execution for, you know, up to three months or just change her sentence to one of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, this is what, this is one of the options. So essentially this is, you have different groups um, trying all the tacks here to try to stop this execution that is now about a month away. So you know, you mentioned the the the, the wrongful uh, or the false, you know, the alleged to be false confession in in this case. And your your, your story mentions that about twelve percent of convictions found to be wrongful stem at least in part from false confessions. I mean, there was also the the statements from the family um, at the time, and I believe from Lucio, right, that that the child had fallen down the stairs a few days before. Um, some various kind of 
you know, questions that are raised in this case. I mean, one thing that I wondered about reading your article and just hearing you talk right now is how do these things get to, you know, we're, we're now basically almost exactly a month from her scheduled execution. She's been on death row for more than 13 years. How does it get to this point before we start to see, you know, all this outcry in action where presumably a lot of the facts in this case have been this way for a long time? Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. I mean, generally speaking, the pressure comes in at the end, right? Because it's the last, like this, you can't go back once you've killed somebody. Um, and so it's not to say that this hasn't been being fought against the entire time. It has been, it's been in the courts. It's had some pretty, um, you know, that you could say sexy news-wise back and forth in the courts as well. Um, and there has been a documentary that was produced on Hulu about two or three years ago that's come out, uh, that came out largely focusing on Melissa and her family. And so it has gotten attention. It's just, you know, at the final straw here, everyone kind of puts their eyes, but it is a fair question. And I think it's one that kind of, that the lawmakers are tried to, to address a little bit because this is the second time the, the letter sent to the parole board was prompted by the new newish um, House Criminal Justice Reform Caucus, which was formed in 2019. And it's a bipartisan group of lawmakers who were essentially they were frustrated that none of their criminal justice reform bills were making it to the finish line. So they tried to form a caucus to try to get some more leverage, get some more power, get some more organization. Um, to do that. And this is the second time they've asked the parole board to stop an execution after the date has already been set. Um, you know, you could very easily ask and you should, and we have like, why, what, like, what is wrong with the system if the only way that the lawmakers are getting involved in these executions that they deem to be so concerning that they are trying to step up and have the parole board stop them at the last minute, that that is the option. Like these are the lawmakers. These are the people who are making state laws and what should be done on the front end to prevent things like this from happening in the first place. If they're so concerned that, you know, multiple executions in the last um, three years, yeah, in the last three years have required this type of intervention. What, how much weight do you think the lawmakers standing up and saying this? I mean, does it give political cover to Greg Abbott to, to do something? Do you think it's it's largely performative. I mean, how much does it help to have these lawmakers on, on her side? Yeah, and I would honestly, I would have said three years ago when they did this, for when they had 26 um, lawmakers spoke out, it was the 13 Republicans, 13 Democrats uh, for the Rodney Reed execution. Um, I would have said it was performative, but the parole board actually did suggest to delay the execution by three months. Um, whether that was because of them or not, you know, you can't say, but it, it's definitely interesting because I, it was unexpected. Um, the, the Court of Criminal Appeals eventually, actually hours later, stopped the execution before Greg Abbott had to weigh in. Um, but I think it does at this point, there's almost 90, like there's a majority um, of the Texas House saying that they want this execution to be stopped. So I think that does give him some cover whether or not he would take that cover um, is unclear. He didn't respond to questions about, about it yesterday when I asked after the lawmakers did this. Um, but 
it, it is, I, yeah, so I would have said three years ago that this is just for show, but apparently, I mean, the parole board did vote in favor of Rodney Reed three years ago. So it's, I mean, it's, I'm not going to say it can't have an effect on them this year too. Sure, sure. And Rodney Reed, though, I mean, his case is still in some some limbo, right? I mean, it's not as though he's been, you know, like we're, we're still waiting on court rulings from him, aren't we? Sure. And that's the, the thing with this too, right? Like it's not saying by stopping the execution, someone is let out of prison. That's never the case. Um, so yeah, what happened with Rodney Reed was his court, his case was sent back um, to the local court saying, hey, it seems like there's some big concerns about innocent, possible innocence here. You should weigh that. Um, the court has since, the local court has since said, you know, they held a hearing. They said no. They went with what the attorney general's office said, which was, you know, carry on. This this man is guilty. Um, there's nothing to prevent, like, to overturn that. Um, and we're waiting for word from the court of criminal appeals whether they're going to accept that recommendation or they can just say no. He actually should be, you know, given a new trial or or whatever. But um, yeah, that's still pending. And so the same thing would be for Melissa Lucio, just because. I mean, what you, if you expect what's going to, the board would do what they did for Reed, it was to give three months, at least three months, so that new issues could be looked at more closely. Um, the Innocence Project recently got in, you know, they're a big national group that takes on cases pretty selectively. So when you hear that a case is tied to the Innocence Project, that does kind of raise eyebrows of like, oh, there must be some credible doubt here. Um, so, you know, they recently jumped on. So they're trying to file new things still. They're looking at new things still. So it might be a couple delays so you can raise new issues or it could just be, um, it could be, you know, change your sentence to life in prison without parole. Um, that's probably a little bit more far-fetched of what the parole board would choose, but that's like the most they could do. And so obviously she's not, free from prison. She's not found innocent. Um, she's just not subject to execution. Okay, so then we also had some death penalty news in Texas involving the Supreme Court, kind of tying our two topics together. The uh, Supreme Court weighing in on the case of John Ramirez, who had been denied by the state the ability to have his pastor in the death chamber while he was executed, uh, laying hands on him and, and praying out loud, I believe. Tell us what the Supreme Court did in that case. Yeah, so this is really interesting because this is like the biggest topic that the U.S. Supreme Court seems to be interested in with the death penalty the last few years, because this has this whole argument over what religious rights um, people who are about to be executed have uh, has been going back and forth between Texas and the U.S. Supreme Court since 2019. Um, so what happened yesterday on Thursday was that the U.S. Supreme Court said, yes, for John Ramirez, who is a man who was set to be executed in September, um, who had requested that his pastor be able to, you know, touch him and pray aloud during his execution, that, you know, Texas had no, had no reasonable standing to deny that is essentially what they said. Um, and so, you know, John Ramirez, who was convicted in a... Um, in, for killing a, a store clerk in Corpus Christi about more than 15 years ago. Um, he can now be executed. He can have a new execution date set, um, provided Texas 
prison prison officials change their policy to allow that to happen, um, which the state prison system has said they will do. Um, so the Supreme Court hasn't been focused on, you know, issues of the legality of the death penalty, issues of the constitutionality of the death penalty, um, but they have been really focused on this la these last rights, you know, as a way to say it, the last rights of the executed. Um, and it started in 2019 when a Buddhist prisoner was set for execution and he wanted a Buddhist chaplain, a Buddhist, a Buddhist um, spiritual advisor in the execution chamber with him. Um, and Texas has for decades allowed their staff chaplains, their staff uh, religious advisors in the execution room. They often had a hand, have a hand on their leg. They kind of pray quietly under their breath um, while the execution is happening, but they only have Muslim and Christian chaplains on staff. Um, so that was ruled to be, you know, discrimination. You have to be able to, uh, you know, respect everyone's religious religions. Um, so essentially what Brett Kavanaugh said at the time was, okay, you can either allow any chaplains in or none of them. Um, but you can't selectively choose which people, like which faiths get to have their religious advisors in. And TDC, the Texas prison system, okay, so we'll let nobody in. Nobody gets to come in. Um, and then another prisoner later sued saying they wanted a religious advisor in. And again, the Supreme Court said, okay, you know what? Yeah, you do need to let them have an, a religious advisor in. So they, Texas said, okay, we'll let a religious advisor in of any faith, your personal religious advisor can come in provided they pass a background check, obviously, and are, you know, go through an orientation so they know the execution process. But they have to stand in the corner of the room. They can't touch you. They can't pray aloud. They can't do anything that they had used to do when it was staff chaplains. Um, and that's what led to John Ramirez's case. He said, well, I want my pastor to be able to touch me. It's like important to his religion that I you know, hands are laid on him as he dies um, and that he's been prayed over. And Texas said, no, we're not going to let you do that because, you know, they might disrupt the execution. They might start speaking politically. Um, they kind of, they gave out a lot of these hypotheticals that they admitted to the Supreme Court. Yeah, like, yeah, the risk of that is like admittedly low, um, but still it's any risk is too much of a risk to disrupt an execution. Um, and the Supreme Court didn't go for that. So they said yesterday, um, you know, give, this is there's no reasonable reason for you not to do this. Other states do this. Um, so you, again, they have been told to change their policy, which has changed repeatedly. Um, at the, it's interesting to see what happens next. Um, what someone will request next is a concern that the court had when they were hearing these arguments of, are we just gonna get every execution that's set? Are we gonna have to decide each case for Texas, how you're gonna do this? Because apparently Texas, according to the Supreme Court standards is not making good decisions on this, um, in this regard. So it's really been this um, kind of crazy back and forth on not anything to do with, yeah, like how the death penalty is give, handed out, how the death penalty is upheld or, you know, just the fairness or anything about the death penalty itself, but just how, what religious rights these people have as they are being put to death by the state. 
Yeah, it's been interesting to watch this uh, play out because the state kind of continually and repeatedly denies these prisoners their requests, you know, about while also it being fairly clear how the Supreme Court is going to act, and even the Texas's defense being fairly lukewarm in court when they actually come back and argue it. I mean, you mentioned in your story that the state later told the justices that the risk of disruption was likely low. I mean, yeah, the the the, the Texas's stance on this has has just been it's it's almost like fight fight the inmates, but not the 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 lawyers on this in a way that's been been curious and interesting to watch. I mean, it's, okay. it's a typical prison mindset, right? Like, the, you know, it's a, the prison officials say what goes, not the inmates. So it is kind of interesting that they have really dug in on every step of the way here. Like, even having been told by the Supreme Court several times, like, hey, you have to do this, you're doing this wrong. Texas continues to just say, the prison just continues to say, no, we're not going to do what you ask. We're not going to do what you ask. Um, and it's, I mean, it's very typical for, I mean, prison life, right? Inmate, they don't, inmates don't get a say. Yeah, you know, this isn't even really a conservative liberal thing because the conservative justices have, have in large part been on the side of the inmates in this. And this was an 8-1 decision. And you know, you mentioned Kavanaugh being, you know, uh, taking action in some of this. The, the decision was written by John Roberts in this case. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch how this all these kind of death uh, row uh, cases and issues proceed. But I think that's about all the time we have to talk about them today. Andrew is ready to kick off his weekend. Um, so thank you to Andrew. Thank you to Jolie. Thank you to our producer, Justin. Thank you to our sponsors, the Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas the Texas State University System, Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges, and City Health. We'll talk to you all next week.